Okay, so as we come to the end of our first full day of this retreat, in some ways we've taken a deep dive into this beautiful heart quality of metta, of kindness, goodwill, friendliness. And this afternoon, Oren led us on a guided metta meditation so that you could continue to cultivate it during your practice for the rest of the day. And in the introduction, he mentioned briefly that metta is just one of four skillful mental states that together are known as the Brahma-viharas, the other three being compassion, appreciative joy, and equanimity. And as you will see on the chant sheet, these four are often known as the divine abidings or the sublime abidings. That's the usual English translation of the term Brahma-vihara. So Vihara, as Oren mentioned, means dwelling place, home. And Brahma was a god at the time of the Buddha. And that term was inherited. So Brahma has this implication of being the highest, the most heavenly, the utmost. So often Brahma Vihara is translated as sublime abidings or heavenly realms. And as Oren mentioned this afternoon, I like to really emphasize the home quality of these Brahma-viharas, the sense that they're really the true home. It's where our hearts can rest when they're not assailed by stress and distress and difficulty. This is where we naturally abide or dwell. And just with our physical home, there's a sense of deep ease there, deep relaxation. It's where we can feel comfortable because it's where we're most, it's how we most truly are. So Brahma Vihara has a sense of being at home and it also has a sense of being boundless, unlimited, completely unconditional. Because when each of these qualities are developed to their utmost, they can be offered equally to all beings, no strings attached. And just to acknowledge that that's a pretty high bar, and before it starts to reinforce any, perhaps, sense of inadequacy, it's important to remember that these are practices, they're trainings. And most of us, in the beginning, need to have a lot of patience just to allow and trust that these different qualities of love will develop naturally and gradually as we keep inclining the heart and mind in that direction. So even though this is a fairly short retreat, we wanted to touch into each of these four qualities for a few reasons. One is that very naturally as the practice develops, we find ourselves moving between these different flavors of love quite spontaneously. So it's helpful to get familiar with what they are so that we can strengthen them when they do arise. The second reason is that depending on what's happening in our lives, different circumstances, one or other of these four qualities might actually feel more relevant, might be the one that's most useful to navigate a particular challenge. And a third reason is when all four of these qualities are equally well developed, they give us a lot of steadiness, a lot of resilience. 
So just like a four-strand or four-ply piece of rope has a lot more strength than a single strand, when all four of these qualities come together, they really give us a suppleness and a responsiveness, a strength to our hearts and minds. So these four beautiful qualities of kindness and compassion, appreciative joy and equanimity, are not only beneficial in and of themselves, they also powerfully support our insight practice. And they offer that support in two ways. If we think of the analogy of our physical health, the Brahma-viharas act as a prevention and as a cure. So they act as a prevention by making the heart and mind more resilient so that we're less prone to attack by the afflictive states, such as the five hindrances. So I like to think of these Brahma-viharas as in some ways being like vitamin C for our emotional immune systems. When we have a strong foundation of kindness and compassion and joy and equanimity, it's much harder for the afflictive states to kind of get their hooks into us, get a grip on us. So I'm guessing that most of you have had the experience at times maybe of being in a a good mood. And little things that otherwise might have irritated or depressed you just seem to bounce off because of the protection of that good mood. And if we were to look more carefully at what we're calling a good mood, we'd probably recognize that one or more of the Brahma-viharas was present to some degree. The opposite is also true. When we're in a bad mood, again, as I'm guessing you've all probably experienced, the underlying negative mind states tend to amplify things, and it's easier to get caught by painful emotions. The good news is, though, that when we do recognize that we've got caught, the Brahma-viharas can be a very powerful antidote. So, for example, metta or goodwill is the antidote to ill will or aversion. So when we recognize those afflictive states, we can try to reroute or reroute the mind into a more skillful state by consciously working with the Brahma-viharas. So metta is the antidote to ill will. Compassion is the antidote to suffering or pain of all kinds, emotional or physical. Appreciative joy is the antidote to envy or jealousy. And equanimity is the antidote to all forms of reactivity, of imbalance and bias. So traditionally, as most of you know, when we start to train in these qualities, we begin with metta, because in the Theravada tradition, metta is the foundation that these other three qualities develop from. And metta is usually translated as loving-kindness. But we need to be a little bit careful with the loving part of loving-kindness. Because in English, at least, the word love has come to have such a wide range of different meanings. Almost it's become a little bit debased. So we talk about loving ice cream, for example. That's one end of the spectrum. And then there's what we can think of as Uh, romantic love in the form of, you know, what we hear in popular songs or movies, read about in magazines and novels. 
And that romantic love is often very exclusive. It's reserved for only one person. It's often very emotional, it's unstable, it doesn't last. So in many ways, this is the opposite of the kind of love that we're talking about in relation to metta, because ultimately metta becomes completely unconditional. So that's one reason why generally I tend to talk about kindness more than loving kindness, but I'll try to use the word metta and then you can uh, insert whatever term makes the most sense for you that's in this terrain of benevolence, of goodwill, warmth, friendliness, and so on. And in fact, in some of the suttas, the original discourses, metta is defined in some suttas as non-ill will. So hopefully that makes it a bit more accessible. You know, we can hear loving kindness and it sounds so like some kind of oceanic bliss. But if we can think of it as the absence of ill will, hopefully that's a more accessible starting point. So metta is the first of these four qualities, and generally it's the one we hear most about on retreat. So just to name one potential downside, when we hear so much about metta and not so much about the other three, it can give the wrong impression that metta is supposed to be the default response to everything. And I name that because that was true in my own practice early on, and I sometimes see it in students too, that we think that we're supposed to just make metta the default response to every situation, when in fact there can be some situations where metta is not the most wise response. There can be a misunderstanding that metta means we're supposed to be everybody's new best friend. But metta is always underpinned by wisdom. So, for example, if we've been in a situation where we've been harmed, sometimes people will almost tie themselves in emotional knots trying to find a way of offering kindness to the other person without really acknowledging or recognizing the harm that has been done. So in a situation like that, it might be more skillful to begin with self-compassion and to really heal our own hurt. And then eventually we might come back to that same situation and be able to more genuinely offer kindness to the other person. But again, depending on the situation, it might be that equanimity is actually the most appropriate response. So we can keep the other person at a safe distance, but based on the wisdom of equanimity rather than aversion. So we always need wisdom to discern which of these four practices is the most applicable when. And if metta doesn't feel like it's working for some reason, then you might want to just experiment and see if one of the other Brahmaviharas feels to come more naturally. And then later on, you might circle back to metta and see how that's working. So as Oron emphasized this afternoon, metta is a gradual training. And especially in the beginning, we really want to start with where it comes most easily, most naturally. And in my own meta practice, I've started tuning in to the natural environment and particularly to the creatures 
that are around each center that I happen to visit because I've been finding them a very powerful source of metta, very natural and easy place to start. Because sometimes it is easier to start with non-human beings. Usually our relationship to animals and birds and fish is a little less complicated than it is with human beings. So I offer that as a tip if you're struggling with a, to offer meta to humans. See if there's some kind of wild creature or a pet that kickstarts it for you. So here at IMS, when I've been, just today actually, I was walking through the woods and I came across a flock of wild turkeys. And in winter, there's not that many other creatures about. So I just felt this flicker of warmth when I saw them doing their kind of weird, to me, weird sort of turkey dance. And then they do that thing where their heads are bobbing and their tails are turning and catching the winter sunlight. And whenever I see them, I just get this flicker of warmth. And just for a moment or two, whatever I was caught in, in my own human-centric world, just dissolves. And there's that feeling of connection. And to me, that little flicker of warmth is just a form of metta. And so you might even right now think about your day-to-day. And if there were any encounters with other beings, human or non-human, where there was just that flicker of warmth. And if you think of the turkeys or any other creature that registers like that for you, how does that feel? As I look out, I can notice a few soft smiles. Sometimes the eyes feel a little soft, a little beginning of a radiating of warmth somewhere, or a little feeling of spaciousness. So just seeing if that might register as the beginning of metta. And if nothing much is coming up, that's okay. Maybe turkeys just aren't your thing. Maybe you can think of some other creature or being that naturally kickstarts that metta feeling for you. So metta is this foundation of goodwill, of friendliness. And it's said that when that metta turns towards pain, stress, distress, it flowers naturally as compassion. So compassion is the willingness to meet pain of whatever kind and when possible to help it to release. Because compassion is not simply empathy, it also includes the intention to relieve suffering wherever that's possible. And sometimes people ask, well, what's the difference between metta and compassion? To me, metta is a more generalized goodwill or friendliness, while compassion is oriented specifically towards pain and suffering. So while there is a close connection between the two, energetically, compassion might feel a little bit different. And sometimes we can... Okay, I said we. I meant me. Sometimes I can unconsciously use metta as a way of distancing myself from pain or distress. 
So there's been times in my practice where I've been sitting there saying to myself, may I be safe, may I be healthy, may I be happy, may I know peace. And what I really meant was I hate this, make it go away, I want it to stop. So I'm kind of trying to use matter as a, a sort of a band-aid over a gaping wound instead of actually turning towards and acknowledging the distress that I'm feeling. So compassion phrases are not quite so easy to cheat with because they invite us in a way to become intimate with the distress. And again, with a little caveat here, to become intimate in what I call homeopathic doses. So all of these practices are done in the service of balance. And sometimes, again, people hear this invitation to connect with pain and think they're supposed to drill down into their deepest, darkest trauma. But this just leads to overwhelm, as you probably all know. So we want to very gradually and carefully expand our capacity to be with what's distressing so that we're not either reflexively ignoring, denying, resisting, but also not falling into drowning and getting overwhelmed. So this is the skill of compassion. So as an example, to get a sense of how compassion can feel, I'd like to share another animal story from around here. And this one is a little bit more painful. So keep in mind that it's about orienting to the relief of suffering. So I was back here at IMS three months ago in the fall for the, to teach the first half of the three-month retreat. And I was walking with some friends along Pleasant Street, and we noticed, unfortunately, some small animals that had been run over, squashed on the road. And when we got closer, we saw that there were a few baby turtles and they must have recently hatched, and they were trying to cross the road, and they got hit by a car. So, you know, it was painful to see this. We were feeling a little bit distressed at this destruction of life, and then we saw some movement and realized that there were some other baby turtles right on the edge of the road that had survived and were trying to cross the road. So my friends and I were able to pick them up very gently, and we took them across the road and put them way off into the undergrowth so hopefully they'd have a better chance of survival. And so for me, watching my friends pick up those turtles with such care, that was a poignant moment of compassion in action. And so as you heard that story, maybe you noticed a slightly different energy in the heart compared to metta wonder if it did feel just slightly a different resonance, a different vibration or frequency. So this is part of the skill training of these Brahmaviharas to be able to tune in and to recognize how these different flavors of love affect us, what their signature tunes are in some ways. And if we find that we're getting off balance in some way to redirect our practice, to perhaps one of the other Brahmaviharas to help us come back to balance again. 
So for example, if we're practicing compassion and we find ourselves edging into a bit of overwhelm or sorrow, we might need to turn to the third of the Brahmaviharas, which is mudita, often translated as sympathetic joy or altruistic joy or appreciative joy. Because traditionally, the orientation with mudita is towards sharing in other people's happiness. It's that capacity to feel gladness when we connect with someone else's good qualities or success or good fortune. And of these four Brahmaviharas, it seems like this one is almost a poor cousin. It doesn't get nearly as much attention as the others. So I really want to highlight it because it can be such a powerful antidote. I think our dominant mainstream culture where in a way, conditioned to be more competitive, to be individualistic. And so the idea of appreciating somebody else's success can be a little harder to get our heads around. But if we do continue to cultivate it, what we often find is that it can powerfully decrease our sense of separateness, of isolation, and of lack. We start to live more with a feeling of abundance. We feel more connected to others, kinder and more generous. And we stop taking our problems quite so personally. So as the Dalai Lama said, if you can learn to feel happiness for somebody else's happiness, then your chances of happiness increase by 7 billion, because that's the approximate number of beings in the world, humans in the world right now. So traditional mudita phrases are things like, may your happiness and good fortune continue. May they increase and never wane. Or simply, I'm happy that you're happy. So to try and find a, uh, to give you a felt sense of the flavor of mudita, I'll share another animal example. I was planning to stick to creatures around here, but... uh, Having spoken of that rather sad turtle story, then I thought I'd offer a more positive turtle encounter. This is one that happened for me quite a few years ago now. I'd left New Zealand and I was living in New South Wales, Australia, and managing a retreat center there. And at that time, actually similar to now, that part of Australia was in a pretty serious drought. But a friend and I were going out camping, and this friend had a really a real affinity for reptiles of all kinds. So we're driving along on our destination uh, through some pretty dry brown farmland, mile after mile of it. And every now and then we could see a dam or a watering hole in one of the fields. And almost every time, there was no water there. It was just cracked mud at the bottom. And after a few hours of driving in the outback, my friend suddenly slammed on the brakes and reversed. And when I looked around to see what had made him stop, there was just this little speck on the road that I would have thought was just a piece of junk. But he immediately recognized it as a baby turtle. And we assumed that this turtle had crawled out of one of those dried-up mud holes in search of water. So 
So my friend picked it up to bring it in the car with us with the intention that we might be able to find it some water somewhere. And not too surprisingly, the turtle was not very happy about this strange experience of sitting on a car dashboard. <laughs> it had its head and its, all its limbs in its shell and it released a small puddle of pee. And I can tell you that dehydrated turtle pee is pretty potent. <laughs> So we were driving along, along uh, and along and along, because there really wasn't any water, until eventually we did come to a stream that had flowing water in it. And my friend picked up this turtle that was sitting on the palm of his hand, and he didn't want to shock it, so he just very gently lowered his hand into the cool, flowing water. And the turtle had had everything retracted, but all of a sudden, its head came out, and it looked around. And I swear, it made direct eye contact and just looked at us like this total Walt Disney moment. <laughs> and then it swam off. And I was trying to imagine what that experience would have been like for an almost dehydrated turtle to find itself in flowing water. And I thought, maybe that would be like turtle nibbana. <laughs> So as you hear that story, you might get a sense now, how is the heart? Is there a different flavor energetically as you connect perhaps with some flicker of mudita, of appreciative joy? And so we come now to the fourth of these Brahmaviharas, upekka, usually translated as equanimity. And equanimity is not a word that's uh, used much in English anymore. In fact, I don't think I'd even heard the word until I started getting involved in Dharma teachings. Basically, it means balance of mind, that quality of evenness, of stability, composure, non-reactivity. And it's that capacity to meet whatever life brings us, pleasant or unpleasant, delightful or painful, with some degree of ease, of steadiness. So it's not a disconnected or dull, apathetic, non-responsiveness. True equanimity has the very refined, energetic quality to it. We're open to whatever presents itself. So there's a quality of deep acceptance and peace. So the traditional types of phrases that we use to move the heart-mind in this direction are things like, may I be open and balanced and peaceful. That's from Jack Cornfield. Or from Kamala Masters, may I open to how it is right now, because this is how it is right now. And I appreciate Kamala pointing to this is how it is right now, because it's not a refined, okay, this is how it is, sort of apathy. There's a recognition, there's a wisdom to it. This is how it is right now, and it will change. So those are phrases that work with more general situations. We can also practice equanimity in relation to other people. So in this 
in that sense, the phrases are things like, I care about you, but I cannot live your life for you. Your happiness or unhappiness depends upon your actions, not upon my wishes for you. So we'll be talking a lot more about equanimity later in the retreat. But just for now to say, I think Oren mentioned already that Upeka has this sense of being able to look over, to see, in a way, to see the bigger picture, to get a broader perspective. So in this way, it does relate very directly to insight or vipassana. And I sometimes think of this quality of Upeka, the experience of it, as being like when we're hiking, perhaps, quite a big mountain, and we finally get above the tree line, and maybe we get to a viewpoint, and suddenly we see all of the land beneath us spread out below us, and we can see where we came from in a whole new context. There's that sudden moment of openness and spaciousness and expansiveness, and we're not locked in a small viewpoint anymore. And for me, that experience of changing perspective is a moment of freedom. So perhaps you're wondering what kind of animal or bird might represent equanimity. And I have to acknowledge this one is a little more challenging because most animals naturally evoke some kind of response, right? Either liking or not liking. So in the end, what I came up with was turkey vultures. I don't know if you know those. There's, you see them flying, and that's the reason I chose them, because, well, one, they're not cute like uh, regular turkeys or perhaps chickadees, so they don't immediately have pleasant connotations. Hopefully they also don't have particularly strong unpleasant connotations. But for me, at least, when I see them flying and they get on those thermal updrafts, and they're just soaring and soaring and soaring. I have a sense of that, again, being connected with the bigger picture. And so for me, that's why the turkey vulture can be a reminder of the possibility of equanimity, the ability to connect with the vastness of the sky and to put our own small struggles into perspective. So that's a fairly brief tour of what each of these four Brahma-Vihara qualities are. And to get a sense of how they can work together, I'd like to share just a little bit about um, my own practice and how when I was on retreat at the Forest Refuge a few years ago now, I was working with uh, a teacher who was talking about the nature of mind. And they quoted the 19th century Tibetan meditation master, Shamkar. Some of you may know this quote. But he's talking, he describes how the mind nature is vivid as a flawless piece of crystal, intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, ceaselessly responsive. And at the time, that description really struck me. The mind nature is vivid as a flawless piece of crystal, intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, ceaselessly responsive. And on that retreat, I've been practicing the Brahma Viharas pretty intensively for a few weeks. 
And when I heard about the mind being vivid like a flawless piece of crystal, that quality of transparency made sense to me. Because when the mind is perfectly clear, it automatically responds in the appropriate way with kindness or compassion or appreciative joy or equanimity, just like a diamond naturally responds to light. Sometimes the diamond flashes red or blue or yellow, and all of these colors are possible because of the mind's innate purity. So as I was contemplating this image of the diamond, I started to also think of the Brahma-viharas and how they are arranged, how they interact in terms of a diamond shape. So if you think of a diamond shape like this, we can think of metta as being on the bottom point because metta is the foundation. And then, as I mentioned earlier, when metta turns towards what's painful, it flowers as compassion. So we can think of compassion as being one of the two side points of the diamond. On the other side, when metta turns towards what's going well, towards success, it flowers as mudita, appreciative joy. So we have compassion and appreciative joy on the two side points of the diamond. And then when compassion and appreciative joy are equally well developed, we get equanimity at the pinnacle, at the top point of the diamond. So we have the capacity to open equally to life's 10,000 joys and its 10,000 sorrows. So one way this diamond arrangement might be useful in practice is to, when we recognize that we've got off balance in some way, we might consciously change which of the practices we're doing. So, for example, if the metta starts to feel a bit dry or superficial, perhaps we change to compassion for a while. At other times, we might find that we're feeling a little swamped by the 10,000 sorrows, and so then we might deliberately attune to mudita, appreciative joy for a while, and refresh the heart-mind by connecting with what's going well and what we can feel grateful for. And then equanimity is always a useful balancer for any kind of imbalance. So each of these Brahma-viharas have different ways that they can get off balance. And in the classical teachings, these imbalances are known as the near and the far enemies. So the far enemy is the opposite quality of whatever state we're trying to develop. So, for example, with metta or goodwill, the far enemy is ill will. For compassion, the far enemy is cruelty. For appreciative joy, the far enemy is envy. And for upekka or equanimity, the far enemy is any kind of reactivity. So these are the far enemies, and they're usually fairly easy to recognize. On the other hand, the near enemies are qualities that at first glance might seem like they're the Brahma-vihara, but if we look more carefully, they're just a little bit off in some way. I think Oren used the term decoy this afternoon, so we get that sense of maybe being a little bit deceived. So, for example, with metta or goodwill, 
The near enemy is dependent attachment or sentimentality or conditional liking. I'll do this for you if you'll do this for me kind of thing. For compassion, the near enemy is pity, a kind of distant looking down on poor you over there. For mudita or appreciative joy, the near enemy is exuberance or ungrounded effusiveness. And for equanimity, the near enemy is indifference. So these are just things to be aware of as we're exploring these different qualities. And again, if we recognize that we've moved into what we can think of as enemy terrain, we might turn to one of the other Brahmaviharas as an antidote. So to get a sense of how all this works, I'd like to share a particular way of uh, naming the Brahmaviharas that is put together by two English Dharma teachers, Caroline Jones, some of you might know, she's the resident teacher at the Forest Refuge, and her colleague Paul Burrows. And I like the very uh, simple way that they lay these out. So they say metta, or kindness, is the love that connects. It's an antidote to all forms of aversion. It is not attachment. If it slides into sentimentality, karuna, or compassion, brings the heart back into balance. Karuna, the love that responds, is an antidote to cruelty. It is not pity. If it slides into sorrow, mudita, or appreciative joy, brings the heart back into balance. Mudita, the love that celebrates, is an antidote to envy. It is not competitive. If it slides into agitated excitement, upeka, or equanimity, brings the heart back into balance. Upeka, the love that allows, is an antidote to partiality. It is not indifference. If it slides into disconnection, metta brings the heart back into balance. So in that description, you might have got a sense of how each of these four qualities can be used to balance out an unhelpful mind state. And you might have noticed how each quality naturally slides into the next. But in the end, we return back to metta. So if equanimity slides into disconnection, metta brings the heart back into balance. So we come full circle and we spiral around and through all of these four beautiful qualities and in a way forming a kind of force field of unconditional love. So all of these qualities work together As Oren mentioned this morning, whatever we frequently think and ponder upon becomes the inclination of the mind. Or to put it in more contemporary terms, neurons that fire together, wire together. So all day today we've been strengthening those beneficial pathways and releasing energy from the unbeneficial pathways. So celebrating that 
And there's plenty more that I could say about all of these, but in the spirit of metta, I want to bring this to a close now because I'm sure for many of you, this has been a long, full, rich, and perhaps at times challenging day. So just to finish with another few moments of reflection, as you get a sense of your day today, see if you can get a sense of which of the four Brahma-Varhara practices might have naturally started to arise. Or if there were difficulties and struggles, which of these four practices might be an antidote that you can strengthen and cultivate so that you can, with practice, Really begin to abide in kindness, in compassion, in appreciative joy, and in equanimity. Just allowing whichever of these four qualities feels most relevant for you now. Tuning in. Recognizing how it feels for you. In the body and the heart-mind. Inviting that quality to be a resource. A support for navigating whatever challenges you've come through today. As you appreciate the benefits that may have come from this day of practice, inviting those benefits to be an offering to the welfare, the happiness and the freedom of all beings everywhere. May we know peace.
thank you for your attention. So at nine o'clock, we'll come back here for a fairly short sitting and Oren will offer some chanting with the sheet that was out there. So you'll get to deepen that suffusion with the divine abidings. Okay. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.